Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless Possible. Barrymore started drinking at eight, smoking at nine, and was regularly doing cocaine by the time she was 13 years old. So how exactly did this troubled but talented actress turn her spiralling reputation into a $125 million fortune? Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello, hello. Hello. How are we feeling? We are good. We are back for part two. Yeah. Let's have a chat about what we covered in episode one because there was a lot there and let me tell you, there's a lot more to talk (laughs) about. We spoke about Mish initially, Drew's entire family history kind of. Mm. Now, it was quite stunning to me how, you know, every generation that came before her almost were involved in acting. Yeah. I mean, the Barrymores have actually been referred to as Hollywood's first family before, which paints a pretty great picture as to how deep the acting lineage runs. In Drew's family, there's also a lengthy history of chaos, to be honest, from substance abuse to tumultuous relationships, suspected mental illness. There is a lot to unpack when it comes to her relatives. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this, of course, extended all the way to her mother, Jade and her father, John Drew. Now, despite telling the media that she was kind of hesitant to bring her daughter up in the same world <laughs> that, you know, the rest of the family <laughs> were raised in, Jade did sign Drew up for gigs before she turned a year old. Yeah. Before she turned a year old. Yeah. John Drew, on the other hand, was pretty unreliable and sometimes toxic as a father. Drew actually wrote in her memoir about his flightiness and how he sometimes directly put her in danger when she was a kid. Yeah, he was barely there to be honest for sure drew spent so much of her childhood either with her mother jade or on movie sets with adults she landed the role of gertie in et at the very tender age of six and once that film premiered she became america's ultimate child star her stints on late night television in particular made her a total sensation But as we know, it was not all sunshine. In fact, Drew's trademark innocence was about to be completely eroded away. Yeah, so let's pick things back up in 1983. At this point, Drew was eight years old and working really long hours on the set of Stephen King's film Cat's Eye, where she found herself slipping into an adult world that was far beyond her years. 
Zara. So it's 1983 and after E.T., Drew's mum Jade was able to actually purchase a house for them both in Los Angeles with her earnings. The mother and daughter had travelled the world to film and then promote E.T. and Drew's other films. And as part of that kind of worldwide press junket tour, Jade had begun to introduce her eight-year-old child into the world of partying and nightclubs. Yeah, when she was just eight years old. Now, in Wildflower, Drew reflected on this period of her life. She said, I travelled the world and my mother was taking me to nightclubs and I was working nonstop. I was too young to grasp any of it. It seemed as though Jade almost made a point of not treating Drew like a child. Yeah. Like trying to treat her like an adult. But once again, and I can't stress this enough, This is an eight-year-old kid. An eight-year-old, yeah. Drew wrote of this, I didn't feel eight. I felt older and my mum was always hanging out with younger people. So maybe age wasn't what it seemed to be anyway. All my friends were older because that's where I was in life. When I was a kid, I didn't connect with kids. Yeah, it was actually at the rap party for Firestarter, one of Drew's films that she starred in, where she first drank alcohol. She told Oprah of this time, when I was eight, I had two glasses of champagne and boom, I was tipsy and bubbly and the life of the party and I felt so good and all my problems seemed to disappear for that hour I was out of it in an interview with a UK talk show years later she said I had grown up very fast and I know it's not very normal to see a nine-year-old at a big Hollywood party drinking it looks a little weird people were just laughing and saying you know I dare you to do this and I did and I got really drunk it was such a scary frightening feeling yet it was such an escape from everything else in the world that I took a liking to it I don't have any reference point in my life for a child being thrust into this kind of situation no I think that's a really good point and I think because we have no reference point for it it almost doesn't sound real like it doesn't sound like a feasible thing for an eight-year-old to be encouraged to to do these things like it's so wild to me the way both of her parents let her down like let's not let john drew off the not at either. all he was completely absent so he wasn't doing anything to really help drew at this time according to her memoir and then her mum is putting her in such an like ridiculously dangerous and inappropriate situation again and again. It's completely wild. Now, pretty soon after that Firestarter rap party, Drew became a regular on the LA party scene. She attended film openings, media events and nightclubs. Years later, she said, I really was a party girl. It was really easy for me because even though I was younger, it was good publicity for the clubs. It was very easy for me to get in and I thought that was so cool then. You naturally might be wondering, how the hell was a literal child even allowed into these clubs and bars? Well, Drew once explained to Oprah Winfrey, a lot of the time it was for parties I was invited to. A lot of the time I would walk up and they'd say, oh, it's little Drew Barrymore. Come right in. Good publicity, you know. How is she getting a drink in her hands at these things, though? crazy. As for Jade's perspective on all of this, her quotes to Oprah were really something. Jade told Oprah Winfrey, I would go with her to parties. There were a lot of industry functions, then a lot of social slash business functions. And when we got there, we would stay together for a time. And then she would go her way and I would go my way. And not knowing about Drew's alcohol problem, I was not as scrutinizing as I should have been. What? She's eight. She's eight. (laughs) Why are you talking about her? 
Like she went her way, I went mine. It's like when I go out with my best friend at 21. Yeah, like yeah. if you just sort of split up in the club and do your own thing and then lose each other. Yeah, it's like, oh, I didn't know about her alcohol problem. You knew she was eight. You're her guardian. Her mother. I, I just crazy. Oh. It's, it's beyond belief. It beggars belief. Another factor in Drew's life at the time was difficulty at school. Now, of course, at eight years old, she was already a movie star, but she was also trying to do regular schooling at the same time. And that fact didn't always mesh very well. In fact, according to Jade, Drew was pretty mercilessly bullied. Jade told Oprah when she would come back to school and just try to assimilate and try to be like all the other kids, there was a group of kids that would really stick it to her. Very resentful, tell her she was fat, she was a cow, she was ugly. I mean, this was day after day after day. Drew added to that, after six hours, five days a week of getting non-stop put downs, I didn't want to come home and discuss more of it. You know, I just wanted to try and forget about it. Mm. She sort of didn't really belong anywhere. No, she was being treated like an adult at work. She was getting bullied at school. And then on top of all of that, going out and partying at night, it seemed like there was no one in the room who was looking out for Drew ever. Not her mother, not her father, not her co-workers. I know we said in episode one that... Steven Spielberg was something of a mentor for her, but then I'm imagining Steven Spielberg's a pretty busy man. Correct. I'm guessing he's not in many of these rooms. Also has a lot of kids of his own. Yeah. So in Little Girl Lost, Drew's first memoir, she wrote that at nine years old, she and a friend stole two packets of cigarettes from their mothers and smoked them all in the bathroom in one go. From that day on, not only was Drew drinking a lot of alcohol, she was addicted to cigarettes too. Around this time, she also started smoking weed as well, which was given to her reportedly by the mother of a friend of hers. Now, a few months after sort of her party lifestyle began, Jade began to kind of catch on to these habits. According to Little Girl Lost, Jade attempted to ground Drew, but her attempt at discipline never worked because Drew was kind of expected by her peers, the public and the media to make appearances at venues because of her work. So the rules mm. sort of didn't apply. Mm. I mean, that's an excuse that Drew gives in her first memoir. For sure. I wonder if with decades of hindsight now, she and now as a mother, if she feels slightly differently about that. Yeah, I think that's fair. For them to say, well, she had to be here because of work. If anyone in Drew Circle said to these venues or publicists, hey, this kid's starting to get addicted to alcohol and cigarettes and weed at nine, perhaps yeah. we cancel these appearances. I would hope that yeah. people around her would say, good point. I also just refuse to believe that any industry exec can usurp a mother or a father when it comes to their own 100%. child. Looking back at this time on the Drew Barrymore show, Drew said, I always rebelled against authority because deep down inside, I was like, I'm paying the rent around here. It's true. Yeah. So maybe she was also cantankerous from like the earliest of ages as well. And I'm not saying that that makes it okay, but maybe she was incredibly difficult as well. Yes, but also... You're paying the like you didn't have to be paying the rent either. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't, shouldn't have be. been signed up for acting before you turned one. And let's say that you were signed up for acting and you were making all this money, putting that money away for when you turn eighteen mm. is probably a much smarter plan than having a kid 
that bankrolls the family. family. And again, I'm sure it's layered. Who knows how they were going to survive otherwise. But still, it makes it very complicated and you're not protecting the child. Yeah. Now, by 1986, an 11-year-old Drew Barrymore had been a movie star for most of her young life. By this stage, she'd also been drinking, smoking and partying for several years. But had so far managed to hide the majority of it from her mum and the public. Yeah. That year, Drew filmed the made-for-TV Christmas movie Babes in Toyland. Now, she filmed that in Germany alongside a 21-year-old Keanu Reeves. In her first memoir, she wrote that she had a 15-year-old boyfriend named Michael, who was a crew assistant on the film shoot. She was, of course, just 11 at the time. So we've got an 11-year-old dating a 15-year-old. She wrote, Michael was the first boy with whom I ever seriously made out. During filming for that movie, Drew connected with Rod Stewart and his band while they were on tour in Munich. Drew wrote in her memoir about partying with Rod Stewart's band after the show. She said, there were about eight of us and we were obnoxiously, recklessly drunk. The hotel manager ran out and threatened to kick us all out that very instant unless we quieted down and went to our rooms. Miraculously, though, no one else ever found out about that disturbance. My mum especially. Rod Stewart, what the hell? Odd. Like, where are the adults here? I mean, I say that knowing the adults were in the room, which is just even stranger. Rod then later invited Drew to join the band on tour to Vienna for the weekend, and she did desperately want to go. She said, my mum seriously debated letting me go for the weekend, but then finally said no, which caused me to erupt in a volcanic temper tantrum that lasted for several days. That two of us represented the fun I had when drunk, which would fast become the only way I knew how to have fun, and I saw it rolling away, leaving me behind in a cloud of dust. It shows the pool alcohol and drugs have on the mind. There I was, on a movie set, the one place where I felt confident and appreciated, really good about myself, and I was panicking over the loss of my suppliers. <sighs> Once shooting wrapped on Babes in Toyland, Drew and her mother returned to California and Drew tried to resume schooling. This time she involved herself with a group of much older teenagers with who she continued to drink and smoke with. She gave a quote of this time that reads, I was so much younger than everyone else, but it never mattered. I fit in with them because I knew how to smoke, drink, cuss and flip off authority with a disrespectful joke. She was a little punk. Yeah, she was. She went on. In retrospect, I understand how their acceptance of me served to reinforce my growing addiction. I belong to the gang because I use cigarettes, dope and booze. But if I didn't do any of that, I worried maybe then they'd see me as the dopey 11 year old girl I was. One with not much of a figure a wealth of insecurities and little self-esteem. By all accounts, tensions really started to rise between Drew and her mother around this time. Drew would often throw up throughout the night because of her heavy drinking, which made her addiction to substances harder to hide. Their house cleaner was actually the one who alerted Jade to Drew's marijuana use. However, Drew didn't face any consequences from her mother over this. According to Drew, her mum just simply told her to stay away from weed. Yes. In early 1988, when she was about 13, Drew was cast in the film See You in the Morning. And this was like a rom-com drama that followed two families as they coped with death and divorce. The film was shot in New York, so that's where Drew and Jade headed next. Now, in New York... 
Drew connected with a 17-year-old model who she refers to as Stacy, which was not her real name. Stacy and then 13-year-old Drew were fast friends and went out to clubs, bars and parties together. And once again, Drew was usually led into these places with absolutely no problems because she was a celebrity. Mm. At the time, Jade once again tried to enforce boundaries on Drew with very little success. The pair would fight, often violently. Drew said she would throw and break things in their apartment. And on one occasion, Drew claimed that Jade slapped her across the face after calling her a loser. Mm. Drew eventually ran away from their New York apartment and stayed with Stacy. She only returned to the apartment she shared with Jade to get clothes and drop off laundry. I mean, it's funny, even the way I've said that, the apartment she shared with Jade, as if yeah. Jade is a roommate or a friend instead of her mum custodian yeah it was around that time when drew was about 13 years old that she got into cocaine now in a piece for people magazine that came out a year or so later drew recalled the night she first used cocaine she said i was waiting for my ex-boyfriend to show up and in the ladies room a girl asked me do you do blow even when i said no she said you don't mind if we do it in front of you do you I thought it was pretty rude, but I was like, it's okay, guys. A few minutes later, the girl said, are you sure you don't want any? At that moment, I started to cry. I felt really, really sad. It was 12.37 and I was supposed to be at home in a few minutes, but I didn't care. I was tired and I thought, well, a little Coke will wake you up. Why bother with coffee? It's probably worth noting here that Drew has contradicted herself a few times on the story of when she did first use cocaine. Like sometimes she said it was at her high school prom and sometimes she said it was this night in New York. I mean, it seems pretty natural to me that this kind of period would be blurry. But I think we just wanted to put that on the record. What we do know for sure is that whenever this happened, she was very, very young. Mm. Speaking to People Magazine, Drew recalled the peak of her addiction. She said, one night in June, I'd been having a beer race with some friends and I'd had a lot of beers. To put it bluntly, I was very intoxicated. When I got home, I confronted my mother and screamed, what the hell are you doing here? I wanted her out of the house. She just stood there blankly looking at me like I was the biggest asshole in the world. She wasn't feeding into my shit and that only made things worse. So I started throwing things. Glasses, vases, they were breaking all over the floor. I went from party girl to jerk of the planet. She went on, I walked out to get another beer and was huffing and puffing and swearing at my mother when the front door swung open. Oh shit, the cops, I thought. But coming through the door was a friend I had cut off contact with because she had checked into a rehabilitation program to get sober and that wasn't cool. By that time, I could hardly walk or function. She and her mother pulled me into their car. Where are you taking me, I asked. They told me the hospital. And I said, no prob, as long as it wasn't jail. The last thing I wanted was to get caught in public in handcuffs. At the hospital, I couldn't walk anymore, so they carried me into this room where I just sat. At 13 years old, Drew Barrymore had been taken straight to rehab, Mish. Mm. Now, at first, Drew and her mother attempted to keep her filming commitments still going while she was undergoing treatment. Mm. After a 12-day stay in rehab, which I'm no expert in this, but does sound relatively insufficient, Mm -hmm. where she did undergo therapy, Drew was released to begin shooting Far From Home, a coming-of-age movie filmed in Nevada. Now an employee from the rehab hospital accompanied her to the shoot to help her stay sober. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. No. According to her first memoir, Drew stayed sober throughout 
that filming but relapsed upon her return to New York. It very soon became clear that Drew needed a more intensive and lengthy treatment approach, one that took her out of the party scene completely. She explained, at first I was clean. I was off drugs, but I still had the same behavior. I was still doing the same things. And that's when I really got clean, when I realized I wasn't doing it right. So again, at 13 years old, Drew was placed into another treatment facility for drug and alcohol addiction. This time it was at Van Nuys Psychiatric Facility where she stayed for 18 months. Looking back on her experience on the Howard Stern Show, Drew said this, My mum put me in a full psychiatric ward. I used to laugh at those Malibu 30-day places. I was just like, oh, a little spa vacation? That was the opposite of the experience I had. I was in a place for a year and a half and you couldn't mess around in there. And if you did, you would get thrown either in the padded room or you'd be put in stretcher restraints and tied up. So intense. Mm. When asked about how her mother felt about the situation, Drew reflected. She said, I think she created a monster and she didn't know what to do with the monster. And putting me in the psych ward was her last gasp. I really was out of control and I forgive her for making this choice. She probably felt like she had nowhere to turn. And I am sure she lived with a lot of guilt for years about creating the monster. In late 1988, so after 18 long months of treatment. 18 months. 18 months. I mean, thank God it was longer than the 12-day program she did originally. But yeah, 18 months is one of the longest stints in rehab I think we've covered on Scandal. Drew prepared for her release from the psych ward. To be totally transparent about this, the timelines are pretty hazy when it comes to Drew and the people around her retelling this story. For example, a lot of publications say that Drew was 13 when she entered rehab and nearly 14 when she left. We know for sure she spent 18 months. We know for sure it was around the age of 13, 14, 15. But the exact ages vary depending on where you read about this. Luckily for Drew, the media had been unaware about her addiction to drugs and alcohol up until this point, but that Zara was about to change. Yes, on January 3, 1989, right after Drew's release from rehab, the now defunct magazine, The National Enquirer, ran a front page story with the headline, ET star in cocaine and booze clinic at 13, the shocking untold story. Now, we couldn't find a copy of the full story. I mean, it was 1989. Mm. But we did manage to find some details from the story. A section we managed to source read like this. The Inquirer exclusively revealed that the troubled teen had been forced to check into the ASAP family treatment program at Van Nuys Hospital in September. I had to do something. Drew was ruining her young life and future, her mother Jay told an insider. She was staying out all night and coming home drunk. She was a cocaine abuser as well as an alcohol abuser and she was also smoking marijuana. I had lost control of her. For the record, we don't know who the insider was who spoke to the Inquirer, but whoever they were, Zara, they had a lot of accurate details about Drew's stay in hospital and they clearly had access to her mother, Jade. The story in the National Enquirer continued, Drew underwent intensive individual therapy, group therapy and joint sessions with her mum. She shared a sparsely furnished room, 20 feet long and 15 feet wide with two other girls. She also had to do her own laundry and other chores. Why does this read to me like it's someone with complete access to her medical information or at least 
like to know the dimensions of her room at the hospital. It's very specific. It's so specific. Perhaps in an effort to reclaim her story in her own words, a couple of weeks later, Drew did an exclusive interview with People magazine. The story ran on the front page of the mag and read, Drew Barrymore was the modern Shirley Temple. So it would come as a shock to millions to learn that her precocious movie stardom was accompanied by a more frightening precocity off screen, a premature appetite for drinking and drugs. By her own admission in the following article, she had her first drink at nine, began smoking marijuana at 10, and at 12 took up cocaine. She has twice undergone extensive drug rehabilitation treatment. In that story, Drew said, when I first came into the hospital, they told me I could address myself in meetings as either an alcoholic or an addict. And I was like, right, total joke. I'm neither one. I just happen to have an excruciating headache from a hangover, but it's no problem really. I get them all the time. Gradually, as I looked over the way I'd been behaving and feeling, I realized that I have a very addictive personality. Friends say the two best words to describe me are obsessive and compulsive. I'm also an overachiever. Then it just dawned on me. I said, I'm Drew and I'm an addict. And that was it. I knew it was true and something had to be done about it. A counselor at the hospital called Betty Wyman told the publication, Drew was so sick, sick, sick when I met her. I thought, what a sad kid. The piece went on. Her mother, long in the dark about Drew's problems, could no longer cope. Like most parents, I had no idea what was going on said Jade Barrymore. So where was I? The question is a shocker since our lives have been intertwined like braids, almost like the two of us against the world. But when she turned nine or 10, I felt I had to give her time and space, began to lose perspective on what was going on with Drew. Mm, Drew elaborated on this dynamic with Jade in the People interview. She said, the most emotional part of my treatment has involved trying to get my relationship with my mother straight. That day, I brought up one of my biggest gripes, the question of whether she was my mother or my manager. It was so hard to actually say it to her face. And when I did, I started crying hysterically and ran out of the room. But late that night, everything started coming out one-on-one. And I told her all that I was feeling, how I wanted her to be there as a mother and all that. I just let down the sacred guard and allowed her back into my life. And she reacted like a mum with total love. That was the best feeling in the world. After we'd been through several boxes of tissues, she said it was time for her to go home and sleep. I was so scared to let her go that I wouldn't quit hugging her. I didn't want her to walk out on me. That is so heartbreaking that this child clearly feels like if she lets her mum go back home, she's going to flip back into manager roommate mode instead of motherly guardian mode. It's crazy to me that after having that kind of breakthrough and hearing what Drew had to say and feeling love that they wouldn't just like stay the night together. Yeah. Like, why would Jade? Why would Jade then? Like this is a 13 or 14 year old kid. Now, the piece was incredibly vulnerable, ending with this pretty raw and heartbreaking quote from Drew. I am not a psychic, but for today, I can stay sober. I never want to go back to my old ways. I know that. That is my future, one day at a time. I'm Drew, and I'm an addict alcoholic. I've been sober for three months, two weeks, and five days, and I am really proud of that. Mm, Guys, after the break, we are going to talk to you about the emancipation of Drew Barrymore. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Now you know I'm back. Back 
Alrighty, Mish. Now, even though the now 14-year-old Drew Barrymore was sober, it wasn't all smooth sailing. Yes, her and her mother had had that breakthrough, but it wasn't going to last. Their relationship wasn't healthy enough for them to live together full-time after she got out of rehab. So the answer to all of this was emancipation. In her second memoir, Drew wrote about the process of gaining legal guardianship over herself at the age of 14. She said, I was emancipated by the courts. It's no secret that I had to part ways with my mother because we had driven our relationship into the ground. She had lost credibility as a mother by taking me to Studio 54 instead of school. And I was out of control due to working since I was 11 months old and what that had done to my childhood, which made me grow up too fast. Work was a very positive thing in my life. And sadly, it had been taken away because my mother also put me in an institution because she felt helpless. I think you can really see... How Drew's own wrangling with this has changed between memoir one and memoir two. Absolutely. She went on, on the day of my hearing, my mother was there in full support of my emancipation, which would mean me living on my own. I felt so sad, but too much had happened. The judge walked in and the day went on in a blur. People testified, but it wasn't heavy or dark. The end of the day, the judge looked at me and said these words, I can turn the clock forward, but I can never turn it back. Are you ready for that? Yes, I said. Okay, he said with a slight smile, I hereby pronounce you an adult legally. Yeah, according to Drew, the rehab facility where she had stayed for a year and a half actually worked alongside the courts to guarantee this emancipation. That meant that all the responsible adults in Drew's life at this time did genuinely believe that her going straight out of the rehab facility and into her own place away from her mother was actually the best thing for her well-being. It seems like all the experts in the room felt she was better off as a legal adult than she was living with her mum. Drew essentially at this point had to start from scratch. She found an apartment at the back of the same building that her friend Justine and her boyfriend lived in. She got a job at a coffee house as well. She said, I could tell my boss who had hired me on the novel idea of having a washed up former child actor behind the counter was patient with all my learning curves, but was also irritated with me. Mm, You might wonder why Drew had to get a job at a coffee house at this point. Well, sadly, the press surrounding her rehab stint meant that movie studios didn't want to hire her. In her second memoir, she wrote, when people found out I had been in rehab, they just wrote me off as damaged goods. And sadly, I understood that. I was never unprofessional, but I was on hiatus from being employable. Speaking to chicks in the office years later, Drew said, I was totally blacklisted. I'd gotten out of an institution and I was not welcomed. Not because anyone was mean or cruel, but more like, it was a fun ride, you're done. Speaking on a British talk show about the ordeal, Jade said she went out for auditions and everybody said, Drew, go away. Nobody wants you anymore. And she said, Mum, I'm just going to keep trying. Eventually, they'll accept me back. In lieu of her acting work, Drew teamed up with author Todd Gold in 1990 to write and publish her first autobiography, the one we've referenced a little bit Mm. today, called Little Girl Lost. This harrowing autobiography, accompanied with her original tell-all interview with People, did seem to endear her to the public a little more. Yeah. In a review of Little Girl Lost, the New York Times Magazine's Amos Barshard wrote, reading the National Enquirer headline, you're scandalized. Reading her book, you're heartbroken, but also fascinated. No kid should have to go through all that, but it's sort of incredible that she managed to. 
Drew was eventually accepted back into Hollywood, but it did take a little bit of time. Her second big break came when she was cast as the titular character in the provocative film Poison Ivy. The year was 1992 and she was 17 years old. Poison Ivy was an erotic thriller and Drew played the devious Lolita character of Ivy, a poor teenager on a scholarship at a fancy private school. The film was pretty daring. At the time, the New York Times' film critic Janet Maslin wrote, after her long and well-publicised burnout period, Ms Barrymore is an actress again and quite a sly one in this coquettish role. Miss Barrymore brings her own brand of toughness to the Lolita type. Mm, Drew was back. She was no longer this innocent, wide-eyed child. She was now this electric uh, vixen type. But we need to keep in mind she was still 17 years old. And even... As a teenager, the media continue to treat her as if she was far beyond her years, Zara. Yeah, well, it's so strange. In the context of these two episodes, 17 now sounds very old because we've been covering yeah. it since she was one. <laughs> 11 months old. Yeah. yeah. But 17 is still, you're not, I mean, I know legally she is an adult because she was emancipated, but mm. she's not an adult by every other standard. Mm. In July 1992, a 17-year-old Drew Barrymore appeared nude on the cover of Interview Magazine alongside her then fiancé, a 23-year-old actor and musician by the name of Jamie Walters. Now, this was a pretty scandalous shoot, as Drew was underage at the time. She posed naked next to a fully clothed Jamie on the cover of the mag and posed with other topless models within the magazine. She was also shown smoking cigarettes and kissing Jamie as the two lay on a picnic blanket. Mm, we should note as well that Drew and Jamie's engagement was short-lived. They never made it down the wedding aisle and broke up less than a year after that naked photo shoot. However, in the accompanying interview for that shoot, Drew commented on her status as a sex symbol. She said, once people started seeing a little bit of footage from Poison Ivy, my agent got all these calls. Like, we've got a new role for Drew as a Lolita-esque nymphet. And people were coming up to me on set going, how does it feel to be a sex symbol? And I was like, me? I might be a sensual person person but I don't look at myself in the mirror and go yeah baby you've got it going on <laughs> don't you <laughs> all the time all the time that same year Drew starred in Gun Crazy a film where she played a teenager who kills her sexually abusive stepfather it was a pretty edgy film as well and Drew performed very well she was actually nominated for a Golden Globe for her performance she starred in several more films throughout 93 to 95 and at this time, she sort of had a penchant for playing, I guess, troubled but strong young women. For example, in the 94 Western Bad Girls, she played a sex worker who murdered an abusive client and went on the run. In Wildflower, Drew wrote about this period of her life. I was in a very free state of my life. I had to discover for myself what was tasteful or not. I ran through fields and on beaches naked. I was even in magazines in my amazing time of self-discovery and I was totally in exhibitionist mode without thinking there was a term for it. She went on, in some ways I was just being. And one way to escape the child actress stigma was, ironically, via vixen parts. That certainly changed the perception all right. Jobs started to roll in after the minor B-movie level success of those projects. Within a few years, I was getting work, but I was also getting typecast. I wondered where life was going to take me with this double-edged sword of opportunities. Sounds like the kind of story we hear all the time, right? Mm. Child actress tries to break free, like kind of like the Miley Cyrus thing. Yes. You know, 
does lean into their really sensual, sexy side and then gets typecast like that forever. Like we stick them in that box. Yeah, for sure. I think Angelina Jolie struggled with that for a time as well and then really swiftly broke out of it. In 1995, 20-year-old Drew was spending a lot of time at a club in New York City called the Blue Angel. It was a performance space that she frequented with her friends, putting on experimental and improvised performances for each other. And, of course, the small number of patrons in the crowd. She described one performance by writing, My friend John had developed an alter ego as Dick Haney, the world's worst comedian. And one night he was doing a stand-up routine on stage. I spontaneously decided to join him on set. I gave myself the name Lolita. And as the bit went on, I was inspired to dance around like an old 60s movie go-go dancer in slow motion and take off my clothes piece by piece behind him. Yeah, it really just seemed to be harmless fun among friends. According to Drew, no one had photographed or taped this performance at the Blue Angel, but inevitably, word did get out that Drew Barrymore had performed nude at a club in New York. Now, when Drew was scheduled to appear on David Letterman in April 95, the producer in charge of her pre-interview asked if it would be okay if David spoke to her about the nude performance. Now, in her sort of self-confessed free-spirited era, (laughs) Drew said, sure. Writing about the infamous appearance on David Letterman in her book, Drew said, the night of the show was David Letterman's birthday, which made things very festive. I was on stage and we started talking about the show downtown, laughing and having a good time. I felt safe. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I got this idea in my head to start acting it out. And before I could even think, I was standing on his desk. That moment was just one of completely uncalculated silliness that started gaining motion like a runaway train. (laughs) After I was dancing on his desk, I guess I wondered how I could up the ante and strike a finishing moment and boom, I lifted my top up in a flash only for David where no (laughs) one else could see. Yes, she flashed David Letterman on live TV. Here is a snippet of that moment. Would you like me to do a dance for you? What? Hi, Paul. Paul, okay. give me okay. some okay. Oh, my God. She wrote of that moment, I was shocked at myself. But then I just thought, it's time to get off the desk and go back to my chair. And on my way there, I grabbed David by the tie and brought him in for a sweet kiss on the cheek. And it was sweet. But the reaction of what he would think of this whole moment hung in the balance. Thank God he threw his head back and laughed. He let everyone know that it was okay to enjoy the moment and not overthink. I mean... (laughs) David Letterman's had his fair share of moments himself where he might have made people uncomfortable. Uh, Maybe this was the one, you know, time that he really had to just say it's all good. Drew Barrymore flashing David Letterman was immediately like the water cooler conversation of the year. In the 1995 cover story for Rolling Stone titled Drew Barrymore, Wild Thing, reporter Chris Mundy wrote, Barrymore is in the mood for a little revelry. For one thing, she is flush with the afterglow of having flashed David Letterman. Two nights ago, while demonstrating a striptease-style bump and grind on his desk, Barrymore lifted her T-shirt to present Dave with compelling evidence that she is not a little girl anymore. This afternoon, as she's walked the streets of New York, lascivious men of all ages have raised their thumbs in appreciation. I mean, I appreciate 
this is something that she did and she was happy to do and all of those kinds of things. But I still find it interesting that it's always framed in the context of like not a girl anymore. Mm. Girl to woman. It just feels like slightly creepy. Yeah. I mean, she did. Do it. Do it. No, but it's just the framing of like the constant reminders <laughs> that she was once girl. a child or something. Like we have the physical proof. Yeah. Yeah. In that same interview for Rolling Stone, Drew kind of addressed this idea that she's a wild child, but did counter it with the point that she has never let that wild streak affect her work. She said, I'm fine. This is what kills me. Ask any person in the industry if I've ever missed one fucking day of work or if I was ever unprofessional or threw a temper tantrum or walked onto the set drunk. It's never happened. Doesn't that stand for something? I mean, it does. It absolutely does. It really does. I'm shocked that she was able to build what she has going through what she did. It's insane. By 1995, Drew and American film producer Nancy Juvenan founded Flower Films, a film production company. Now, Flower Films' first theatrical release was Never Been Kissed, the 1999 romantic comedy that, of course, starred Drew as Josie, the lovable nerdy writer who goes undercover <laughs> at a high school for a story. Great film. Never Been Kissed was a massive hit, of course, and successfully propelled Drew's career to completely new heights. Her previous bad girl image was nowhere to be seen with lovable and naive Josie, the perfect character, I think, to completely revamp the public's image of her. For sure. Heading into the 2000s, Drew became a mainstay of the romantic comedy genre. She starred in the hit movies The Wedding Singer, Fifty First Dates, Music and Lyrics, and He's Just Not That Into You. On top of that, she produced and starred in Charlie's Angels and Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, as well as the dark sci-fi thriller Donnie Darko. If you had to pick one of those films to watch right now, what would you pick? I really loved music, music and lyrics. lyrics. I, I thought that was going to be like quite an unpopular choice just then. I loved that movie. Her and Hugh Grant in that movie. So, so good. good. I also did like He's Just Not That Into You as well at the time. Mm, Donnie Darko is great. Have I haven't seen, seen that. that. So no, good. No. But also what a resume right now. Oh, like she's got it all. Everything that happened, what a resume she built for herself after you know so mm. much trouble now what's i think most interesting to me about the story of drew barrymore is how few controversies she found herself in when she essentially restarted her career right she wasn't in any of the headlines for the things she was in when she was younger i mean as far as our research tells us anyway she never struggled again with the level of addiction that she did at the age of 10 to 13 that said i don't want to be like all black and white about this mm. it didn't sound like she was an angel either as she got older she just kind of miraculously seemed to find her way while still having fun as well which yeah. i don't think you hear a lot about not at all in an interview with the guardian a few years ago drew said the best years of her life came after the age of 20 she said 20 to 35 was a blast i thought how am i getting away with this i'm really being quite playful yet still doing a lot of work i really lived and did what i wanted to when i wanted to if i felt like doing something i just did it and it was pretty liberating I wasn't like a nun who went to sleep at 10 p.m. every night. I had fun. She married twice during this time. The first was to a Welsh-born bar owner by the name of Jeremy Thomas. She was just 19 at that time. And what a marriage <laughs> that was. They wed after a night out partying at a club. According to People Mag, they were married for 19 days before Drew filed for divorce. I wish I had a story like that in my I history. Know. The second was to an MTV hosting comedian called Tom Green, who she actually co-starred with in Charlie's Angels 
and Green's directorial film debut, Freddie Got Fingered. They were, it is a funny uh, film fuck? title. Have you not heard of it? Freddie Got uh, Fingered. You don't forget a film title like that one, let me tell you. <laughs> they were married for about a year before filing for divorce. Now, by 2011, she started dating the man who could become the father of her two kids. Will Copelman is an art director who actually also happened to be the son of former Chanel COO Ari L. Copelman. They got married, Mish, in June 2012 and they had two daughters. Olive was born that same year and Frankie, who was born two years later. Mm, Drew did file for divorce in 2016 though and it sounds like it was pretty amicable. After all, they had the divorce finalised in the space of three weeks, which is unheard of in Hollywood. Truly, and I think, you know, it's one thing for Hollywood couples to say very amicable we're mates but the proof is in the pudding how long do you have to spend going through the courts and going through this process three weeks means you're both being pretty kind to each other you're coming to the table with an idea of let's just be fair to each other for sure it's really impressive now Will has since remarried actually and Drew Will and his new wife, Ali, are all on great terms, reportedly. For example, Drew recently told Dax Shepard, Ali knows that I absolutely worship the ground she walks on and I am her biggest cheerleader. Drew said that she tries not to be Ali's best friend, but that she is the most amazing woman, this incredible woman. I just feel like I won the lottery with her. I really did. <sighs> Another I love, reason I love Drew Barry more. I love that quote absolutely also the self-awareness of being like i'm not going to be your best friend like i'm not going to try to sort of like make this into something it doesn't need to be drew barrymore feels like a hug in human form i just really like her in 2020 she launched her daytime hit talk show the drew barrymore show which was described as her by daytime's brightest destination for intelligent optimism and maximum fun I think the success of that talk show and how much we see clips go viral on social media shows that a lot of people feel like Drew Barrymore is a hug in human form. I agree with that. She's also the face of her personal cruelty-free makeup line called Flower by Drew, which celebrated 10 years in business in 2023. And a few years ago, Drew was asked in an interview with The Guardian if she enjoyed any of her years as a child star. She answered that she wasn't sure. She said, I don't think I understood what was good or pleasurable or bad. I was probably chasing joy, but I don't think it was real joy. I was just too young to know. She kind of said with this in mind that she doesn't want her own kids to be child stars and never did. She said, that doesn't mean I would ever shit on the profession of acting. I think it's wonderful. I think film saved my life. I mean, I come from a family that's done acting for 400 years, but film sets are a bizarre world. For me, it was better than my circumstances. It was a savior. For my children, it will not be better than their circumstances. They are going to be so safe and so loved. They won't need a film set to make their lives better. I love that quote too. As for her relationship with her mother, she said she's finally in a okay space about it all. She said, I really did not know how to feel about my mum for so many years. And it's painful to have conflicting feelings about the woman who gave birth to you. But it's like I've finally passed through something which has made me okay with everything. Even if I don't understand it all and might never, never resolve it. It's interesting because in this profile, the journo asked Drew Barrymore if her relationship with her own mum made her worried about what she'd be like as a parent herself. 
And I really liked her answer to this because her answer was no, not at all. She said, I knew I would not repeat the mistakes of my parents. I knew I would never do that to a kid. I wouldn't not be there or put them in two adult circumstances. I knew I'd be very traditional or I wouldn't do it. I would never have had children unless I was incredibly stable and willing to put them first. Drew Barrymore, you might be one of my favourite people we've ever covered on Scandal. I am just in awe of her. How she's managed to build this life for herself when it was set up in such a way. It was set up for her to fail. The cycle of the 400 years before her was set up that each generation inflicts harm on the generation that comes after it and then that cycle is just continued. They all follow the same behaviour patterns, it seems anyway. She broke a cycle of 400 years. It's pretty crazy. And I can't imagine the strength of character that it takes to do that. It's, It's really impressive. And that is all we've got time for. A big thank you, as always, to our research, Eilish Gilligan, who worked on this one with us. What a ride. What a ride, guys. I feel like I've learned so much. Oh, I I feel like I've fallen in love even more deeply than I loved Drew at the very beginning of doing this series. Guys, come follow us on socials. Check out the videos. Check out the nostalgic throwback photos just search shameless podcast on whatever social media app you like (laughs) thanks so much guys we will be back in your ears on thursday for another wrap in the week that was in pop culture bye bye guys shameless media This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.